HMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is away today, and I'm here in studio with Dan Torres. Dan. Yes. News today, really important. I hope really important. The first glimmer of hope and light from the Hamas-Israel war that I've seen or heard of. So maybe you could summarize for us what has happened today so far. And, well, I want to get spend a minute or two talking about why hopefully it's the beginning of something good. Well, so a, a truce uh, was agreed upon between Hamas and Israel, and mediated by both the Qataris and the Americans, it seems like. And tomorrow there will be a pause for at least, it seems like, four days, and there will be exchanges of some hostages. So it looks like 50 uh, Israeli women and children will be released from Gaza, and it looks like Israel will release around 150 women and children. Uh, yes, women and children, 50 that were kidnapped by Hamas. And Israel released from their prisons, I think roughly 150 Palestinian, mostly men, young men, um, who were charged for like rock throwing and other things like that. So there is also a prisoner release on the Israeli side, but Israel will get back uh, 50. 50 out of? Out of, it's, it's hard to say the exact number. The numbers I've seen is like 240. So that means probably the, the total number of hostages would be close to 200. I don't know, or maybe like 190. Um, so I don't know. Um, I read mm. on the news uh, that was coming across my screen that while this glimmer of hope, and it is obviously hopeful and beneficial for those uh, people who have been detained and are in prison in uh, Israel mm -hmm. and those who have been held as uh, hostages uh, by Hamas, presumably in those underground tunnels. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, Israel's Prime Minister uh, Bibi Netanyahu uh, has said the war is going to continue. Yes. To, to take, take little solace here. Yeah. So it seems like there's going to be a pause, though, for at least four days, it seems like. It could be three or four days. There is a potential for a 10-day pause, but it seems like that won't last from what I'm reading in, in the news, um, the extended pause. Uh, I also think aid will be getting into Gaza during this three or four days, which would be critical, I think, to save people's lives um, who've had been displaced from, I guess, northern Gaza into southern Gaza. So it, it, it looks like, for at least for the next couple days, good things. But you'll never know what will happen at the end of, by the end of the week. It's like the war could restart, and it seems likely it will, but who knows, during this pause... Maybe there's new negotiations happening. Maybe there's uh, more conversations, more diplomacy happening on all sides to come some, to some new agreement. You know, Dan Torres, you mentioned uh, the diplomatic effort that has mm -hmm. led to this uh, exchange of uh, prisoners. What I found fascinating was, one of the things I found fascinating was the way in which it came about because the United States doesn't talk to Hamas. Israel doesn't talk to Hamas. So you couldn't have uh, the usual kind of shuttle diplomacy because uh, this, this uh, diplomatic stalemate, uh, which is understandable, the United States is not negotiating with a terrorist organization, although, of course, we do all the time when it fits our, fits our goals. 
But that is why the Qataris played such a vital role, because they are talking to everyone. Yes, that is part of their, their diplomatic strategy, is to talk to all sides in all disagreements. They, they've had that strategy actually for many years. So they're always in a, a sort of a diplomacy mold uh, to help um, navigate deals like this, which are complicated, right? So they get to call the, the Hamas officials and really put pressure on them as well and saying, look, this is the last deal you're going to get from the Americans um, and the Israelis, you know, who are negotiating, I guess, on the other side. And so, yeah, the Qataris have played a role. And in the U.S. has, uh, I believe, bases in the Qatar. And uh, it's really actually a strategic interest of the United States. So the Qataris are some sort of like a mediating uh, force, I guess, in, in uh, these very difficult diplomatic times. So, Dan Torres, perhaps you could help me understand this, mm -hmm. something I really don't. Why now? What has happened in the last day or two or three that makes this possible that wasn't possible two or three weeks or, or longer from, ago? From what I've been reading is that really the families in Israel have been putting a lot of political pressure. There's been a lot of uh, protests uh, inside Israel demanding that more be done for the release uh, of their families um, from, from those who were taken uh, to Gaza by Hamas. So um, that, I think, is just an intense pressure being put on, on uh, Netanyahu to make a deal. And so he, he brought in his cabinet. He said, look, this is the deal. This is what's going to happen. And uh, it seems like the cabinet, the war cabinet, has agreed to this uh, agreement, at least for the next three or four days. So why isn't there more pressure now to bring the rest of the hostages home? Well, I think it's a start that it's being women and children. And I think the goal would be ultimately that. But, you know, if you're going to want all the release of all the hostages, then, you know, Hamas is going to want something in exchange for that. And it's like that's what they're maybe building towards. But that's not where they are right now. And bigger and more. And bigger and more. And, and Israel would have to release probably, you know, maybe hundreds, if not thousands of Palestinians in Israeli jails. So it, that would be a, a more difficult uh, negotiation. Yeah, because to me, it makes a lot of sense in terms of tactics and I hate to even articulate this, but I think it's reality. Those hostages are really, really good bargaining chips for Hamas. Yeah, agreed that, that they are um, from a strategic perspective. Yeah, absolutely. It puts a lot of internal pressure on the government to have to negotiate and find a deal. And so there is, seems that, that there is one. It has been agreed to, you know, I mean, things could happen between now and tomorrow. It begins tomorrow, Thursday. And between now and then? Who knows? I mean, I, so far, the agreement has been made. So it seems like it will happen. Yeah, and I was about to yeah. reflect on, <laughs> no, between now and then, there may be a lot of shooting and yeah, bombing, bombing yeah. and killing. Yeah, very true. Dan, I have no good segue to the guest I want to <laughs> introduce now. So let's do this. Let's come back, and when we do, we're going to talk to Gabrielle Hamill, who is from GLAAD, Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders. We wanted you to know about GLAAD's new outreach that I think is so important to the community, to the LGBTQ community. Uh, we're going to do that right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday local burgers and fries? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Local burgers and fries, spiked milkshakes and more. On the corner in downtown Northampton and on the main drag in Keene. 
Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP news, information, and the arts and messages from community nonprofits. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work in active organic garden. Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome to the show Gabrielle Hamill, who is the Public Information Officer for GLAAD, Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders, also known as the LGBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. We are so pleased you could be with us, uh, Gabrielle, today, because I'm really interested to find out about this outreach that GLAAD has initiated. I don't think it's a new program per se, but uh, GLAAD is running a series of ads and outreach on the Northampton radio group stations and other places as well. And in some ways makes me feel great. Glad is doing this. This is fabulous. On the other hand, uh, is it reminds me a little bit of the f food bank here in Western Massachusetts that has just reopened. It's just reopened. has just opened a new facility three times as large as its previous facility. One hand, yes, we're distributing all this food that's needed. And oh my God, all this food is needed. I mean, it's uh, it strikes me both ways. So GLAAD is doing something really important, and yet it is also a reflection of this outreach is really needed. Uh, here we are in 2023. So would you be kind enough to share with us what GLAAD is doing and why it's doing it? Yes, thank you so much for having me, Bill. So. GLAD, which as you said, is GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. We're a legal advocacy organization in New England. We work with folks who have, um, are living with HIV and folks in the LGBTQ plus communities. Um, and GLAD Answers, which is the program I run, is a legal helpline. Um, so when folks within the community are facing discrimination, have legal questions, they reach out to us for legal resources, attorney referrals, and information about the law. All right. What is it that is necessary? Why is this? It's an important program. GLAAD is putting a lot of time, effort, and money into it. What's the necessity? What is the unmet need 
that GLAD sees that is trying to be remedied or alleviated or ameliorated with this program? Yeah, that's a great question. It's kind of twofold. So on one hand, part of it is just getting this information out to people that might not know about it. Um, and so that people kind of have, you know, information about the law and about what they should be experiencing or should not be experiencing at work, at school, et cetera, is really powerful to know what is discrimination um, and things like that. On the other hand, we also want to hear from people that are facing discrimination or being treated unjustly at work, at school, um, public accommodations, so that we can help kind of remedy and create new laws via impact litigation to help these people. So we're not only supplying resources to folks, but we're also hearing from people that um, we sometimes take on um, via our attorneys to um, pursue different cases. Now, this is a hotline number. I guess since we're talking about it, you should share it. <laughs> that would be a good start. Yeah. Yeah, so we actually hear from people via calls, emails, online intakes, and regular mail as well. So probably the easiest way to get our contact information is on our website, gladanswers.org, which is G-L-A-D-A-N-S-W-E-R-S.org. Um, and you'll get, you can do an online intake, email us from there, et cetera. If you're looking to call, our phone number is 800-455-GLAD. Is the hotline at all involved still uh, with medical issues for persons who are uh, uh, suffering from uh, AIDS? Yeah, so we, we, I'll tell you about all the people we hear from. Um, we, I mean, we take really any phone calls. If you have any question, you're a part of those communities, reach out to us. We'll help as much as we can. The most um, frequent calls we're getting right now are from people facing discrimination at work due to LGBTQ status. Um, kids who are being bullied at school because of their identities, people who are looking to access PrEP, which is an HIV prevention medication, um, transgender people whose medical insurance is denying coverage for healthcare, um, incarcerated people who are experiencing mistreatment because they're LGBTQ+, um, as well as, as um, queer parents who are looking to grow their families. Those are kind of the most common calls we're getting. Could you please go back, uh, Gabrielle Hamill, to the uh, AIDS question? I would like to know, I think listeners would be interested to know, uh, has AIDS, I'm going to sound like a stupid question, but has AIDS for the most part been eradicated or is it still an enormous threat to the LGBTQ community? Well, I'm definitely not a medical personnel, so I can't fully say that's been eradicated, but I will say that's not a common call we get. Um, the most common is like access to PrEP, which is the HIV prevention medication. We don't hear from too many people um, who are suffering with HIV or AIDS, but it is occasional. Could you give us an example of the type of call that GLAD receives, obviously not going into names or identifying information, but what kind of discrimination is the most typical, uh, if, that's, if that's a fair question, or at least give us an example? Sure, that's an interesting question. I mean, I guess a really big one that I can talk about, um, we just filed um, a brief in New Hampshire about like this type of situation um, where an employee is not getting their um, medical insurance, is not covering different types of care. Um, often related to like transition or hormonal care, that can be a really big one. 
Um, and in many states, that's illegal to not cover it. So that's a big one. Um, other forms of discrimination, oftentimes it's harassment between one coworker and another um, at the workplace. Then if, you know, maybe it's about being in a queer relationship or something of that sort, or the perception that someone is gay, they get made fun of, that employee that's being harassed reports it, and then they're retaliated against. That's pretty like a common scenario. And then you can add in kind of, you know, the more specific factors. GLAD's main office is in Boston. Does the organization function mostly in Massachusetts, throughout New England, across the country? What's the reach? Yeah, that's a great question. So we um, work mainly throughout New England. Occasionally, when there's a need, we will take on a national matter outside of New England. Um, But that's really why we're here, to share more about what God is doing so that we can reach more folks in New England specifically. We hear mostly from people in Massachusetts, which makes sense because of where our office is. And Massachusetts has the biggest population of LGBTQ people in New England. Um, But we're trying to reach folks really outside of kind of the metro Boston area as well. Now, GLBTQ, Legal Advocates and Defenders, uh, it sounds very much like a legal organization and a legally focused organization. Uh, Is Mm -hmm. that different from GLAD's history, which I think was a large umbrella kind of advocacy organization on all sorts of issues? Uh, And I understand GLAD takes them on as legal issues, but is that a change over the history of the organization? No, not to my knowledge. So we were um, founded by attorneys. Our board was made up of lots of attorneys. Um, at the beginning. So I think it's been, I think the changes have been what issues are kind of the most pressing against our community. But um, since our inception in 1978, we've been mainly a legal organization. Yeah. And we also do public policy work. In terms of uh, advocacy at the legislature, uh, educational and efforts in that, in that sort of, sort of effort. Uh, Let me, let me note one thing. I want to, uh, really thank uh, GLAD, now uh, LGBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. About a million years ago, uh, my law partner and I, Wendy Sibison, uh, were counsel on a case called Vizio versus Patenaud, which was the first lesbian uh, custody case bef- to go before any state's highest court, which is the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. And GLAD filed a really, really helpful brief in that case. Uh, and we should note for our listeners, GLAD was also the organization that brought the gay marriage case uh, and brought that issue not only to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, but to the United States Supreme Court. So we should thank you every chance we get. So we'll take this chance to do exactly that. Tell me what you, you tell me what you see as being the uh, uh, future of uh, advocacy for the uh for the community uh, at this point, there's been, in some ways, I don't mean to be Pollyannish, but there has been uh, enormous, I hate to use the word progress, but uh, for lack of a better word, I will at this point, uh, uh, on behalf of the equality, the fight for equality f- for uh, GLBTQ, uh, the LGBTQ community. And, uh, oh, no, no, we've already interviewed a dog this week. We've, we, we had a couple of huskies in the studio yesterday. I guess it's kind of a trend. Okay, but getting back to it, seriously, what, what do you see? What, 
I, I know it's hard to predict the future, as Yogi Berra used to say, but what do you see as the future um, for the advocacy efforts? Where, where is the focus going to be? Yeah, well, we're focusing a lot right now on um, ensuring access to health care, especially for transgender people. And I see that probably being something that we'll continue to fight for over the next, you know, several years. Um, yeah, that's honestly probably the biggest. Um, what about uh, incarcerated persons? Uh, a big issue, something that, I, as far as I know, is really not resolved, and it's just a fight person by person with various departments of corrections. Can you enlighten us about that? Yeah. Um, I don't know that there's actually too much more to add beyond what you just said. It is We do hear from incarcerated individuals frequently. Um, most commonly, we hear from folks who are not getting access to the, the health care that they need, to commissary items that match their gender identity, um, if they have, if they are gay or transgender, etc., they're often kept in solitary confinement for long, longer periods of time and kept away from general population. Um, and it is really difficult because, like you said, it is often case by case, and the Department of Corrections is a hard. It's hard to work for to make change across the board to work with. Um, we are, we partner with different organizations. We, you know, work with the ACLU frequently. Um, we refer folks to prison legal services and different organizations that help. And it's kind of a team effort at this moment between multiple organizations to help the folks that we can. Those organizations being the ACLU of Massachusetts, Prisoners Legal S Services of Massachusetts, uh, GLAD or uh, BLGTQ uh, Advocates and Defenders. And did you mention one other? Um, those are the ones I mentioned. There's also Black and Pink, Massachusetts, that does a lot of prison advocacy work. Um, it kind of also depends on the case who we reach out to, but those are some of the main ones, yeah. How big is GLAD? How big an organization? Um, there's a little over 30 staff members, but we're growing uh, at a pretty rapid rate right now, which is awesome. Well... It's, it's the yin and the yang of it. In some ways, they say, yes, congratulations. You're growing. You're fighting. You're doing more. You have more resources. You have more people. You can accomplish more. Great. And yet, here we are. It's 2023, and you're needed more than ever. How is that possible? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I don't have the answer, and it is. I always say working here is the best because I hear about all the great things that are happening in the community, and it's also disheartening because you learn about all of the bad things that are happening to our community. We are speaking with Gabrielle Hamill, who is the public information officer for GLAAD. I would appreciate it if you, I don't mean to be Pollyannish and you can say, no, I don't want to do this. That's an okay answer, really, promise. But it is Thanksgiving week, and it is, of course, many people would note uh, a National Day of Mourning as well on this Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about Thanksgiving and the community that you represent and fight for every day. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on what you're what you're asking? Sure, I'm wondering like if, if it, there's an intersection. If it, if it is a time to give thanks, or if it is a time to be mourning. Well, I guess that's a personal answer for each individual. I guess in my view, it is definitely a day of mourning. I think it's important to recognize the displacement of indigenous people, genocide that happened in the past and is still happening in places all over the world. 
Um, and I also think it's okay to take time with your family to be, or friends and loved ones, to be thankful for what you do have. And I guess in my personal view, um, in order to be able to give that thing, spend that time with loved ones, you should also be recognizing the negative of what's going on. And I think that's probably true in most things in life. There's both and. And I suppose it is appropriate, more than appropriate, to remember that November 20th, as was pointed out to us by the Reverend Michael McSherry, who was a uh, pastor at a local church here in Northampton, who is a uh, regular guest on our program, that November 20th is the Transgender Day of Remembrance, also known as International Transgender Day of Remembrance, which is observed annually and has been uh, for many years. And I guess that is a sobering fact that we should spend a moment on as, as well. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. In the U.S., um, transgender individuals are experience a high rate of homicide annually, especially um, uh, feminine people of color, so transgender black women, brown women. Um, and one thing that GLAD actually does for the transgender community that I would love to mention, we offered the Transgender ID Project, um, which started in 2016. It's a resource for trans folks in New England. We, they apply on our website at glad.org forward slash ID, um, and we assist them with name changes, updating of legal documents, such as IDs, birth certificates, passports, et cetera. Um, and that's really important because then when they're out in public, they're going to like a medical appointment, the RMV, et cetera, like moving forward, they won't be outed as trans based on, you know, their identity documents, um, which can be really like a safety protocol for a lot of people, as well as just affirming who they are. And the Massachusetts law now permits uh, anyone to identify or not identify on their driver's license or their state ID, right? Yeah, you can have an X gender marker, which um, means non-binary or, you know, not, you don't identify as female or male. And in that regard, is Massachusetts a leader or are we a follower of this pack? I actually do think we're one of the leaders, but it now has become um, federal. I believe on passports, you're able to have an ex-gender marker as well. Okay. We have been speaking with Gabrielle Hamill, who is the public information officer for GLAD. You have a new campaign. GLAD has a new campaign, an outreach campaign. So here we are, what we call free media. Go ahead. Gabrielle, the microphone is yours. Tell us what GLAD is trying to reach out with. Yeah, thank you. So for 45 years, GLAD has worked in the courts, state and federal legislators, public education to advance legal rights and protection for communities. Right now, we're really looking to do additional outreach um, so folks know what GLAD Answers is. GLAD Answers is our free confidential legal info line for LGBTQ plus people and those living with HIV. When people in those communities are looking for legal resources, attorney referrals, information about the law, et cetera, they reach out to us. Um, they can reach out via calls, emails, online intakes, regular mail. If you're interested in reaching out to GLAD, our, you can find our contact information at gladanswers.org, which is G-L-A-D-A-N-S-W-E-R-S.org, or by calling us at 800-455-GLAD, G-L-A-D. Um, you'll likely talk to one of our wonderful volunteers. They'll collect information from you, and then we'll share the best possible information and resources that we can. We have had a, a, a 
fund fundraising effort on this station and some of our sister stations uh, this week, raising money for the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts. And what our listeners are used to at this point is the phone number more than once. So please be our guest. Yes, thank you. So our phone number is 800-455-GLAD, 800-455-GLAD. Gabriel, Gabriel Hamill, thank you so very much for being with us. We really appreciate you and your efforts and all that GLAD does. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The cities of Northampton and East Hampton will receive a combined $5 million from the state as part of efforts to decarbonize affordable housing and make it sustainable. The money is part of the first round of the Affordable Housing Deep Energy Retrofit Grant Program. $2 million will go to Valley Community Development Corp. for its plan to redevelop a former Northampton nursing home on Bridge Road into 60 affordable apartments. In East Hampton, another $3 million will go to Beacon Communities Development for the Treehouse Community Project. A civil lawsuit has been filed by Eric Granger of Munson, a minority shareholder of Treehouse Brewing Co., alleging two majority shareholders in the company are paid excessive salaries and secretly invested in real estate. Treehouse co-founders Nathan Lanier and Damian Goodrow have been accused of withholding financial information from Granger. Granger has been deprived of real financial benefit, according to the lawsuit, from the growing company. The 14th annual March for the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts ended in Greenfield yesterday, having raised $458,000. Here's Senator Joe Comerford on why she joined the march. I march because I believe in the work of the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts and the other food banks across the Commonwealth, meeting the immediate demands of hunger and food insecurity of our neighbors. Governor Maura Healey met marchers at the finish line in Greenfield. We're going to do everything we can as an administration to address food insecurity in this state. Nobody should be hungry in this state. The money raised will help provide one and a half million meals to people in need. We had some showers this morning. They are starting to calm down as we get closer to the afternoon. We're going to be seeing some highs mainly in the mid to high 40s evening. Thankfully, temperatures are going to cool down as it's going to be mostly cloudy with no rain. Temperatures mainly in the mid to high 30s. And Thanksgiving is going to be a lovely sunny day with temperatures in the high 40s. I'm Jack Way with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster. WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 
1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Go green on Black Friday at Winesick Nursery in Hadley. Get your fresh-cut green Christmas tree. Pick up a wreath made by the Winesick Elves or a festive poinsettia. Get greens for the mantle or holiday centerpiece or green-filled long boxes for the cemetery. Find gifts for those with green thumbs at Winesick's retail store. Get plants, pottery, garden tools, and novelties. Wrap up a bird feeder with seed. Get knickknacks, plant hangers, glass or planters, and gift cards. Go green on Black Friday at Winesick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at winesicknursery.com. Are you or someone you know addicted to drugs? Narcotics Anonymous can help. NA has been helping addicts since 1953. We are recovering addicts who meet regularly to help each other stay clean. We offer meetings and services online and in person. To find one of our meetings or to get information on what services are offered, visit www.westernmassna.org or call us at 1-866-NA-HELP-YOU. That's 1-866-624-3578. Welcome back to Talk the Talk. This is our segment, Sex Matters, with our show's resident sexologist, sex educator, Dr. Jane Fleischman, and the appropriate walk-up music for Dr. Fleischman today, because <laughs> our topic is, as I understand it, desire. Okay, I'm all ears. Bill, you know, I just have to say... Even though I've been on your show for a few years, I'm always happy that you invite me back. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jane, i got to tell you, it's kind of touch and go sometimes. <laughs> I hear you. Bill, you ever hear the term discrepant desire? Discrepant desire. No, but I love the alliteration. I thought you might. So today's topic is really about something that a lot of couples deal with. Couples who've been together for a few years, couples who've been together for a long time. You, too, may have had to deal with this issue of discrepant desire. I don't know, but we're going like to find out a I'd like to plead no on that until <laughs> I find out what it is I'm talking so, about. Well, I'll tell you about that in a moment, but first I want to begin by telling you about That's a, a very good radio teaser. We will find out in just a second what right. discrepant desire is, but first, Jane has something else she wants to share with us. <laughs> I am not selling toothpaste. Okay, <laughs> so... I want to begin by telling a story about two people. They've been in a couple for about three years, and they're looking for help. Their names are Chris and Alex. And I've changed their names to um, provide a little bit of anonymity to uh, the folks who talk to me about this. But also, I've changed their names to two non-gendered names. So it could be a couple of any kind of orientation or gender identity. So they've been together, as I said, for three years. And at the beginning of their relationship, Bill, they seemed to have the same level of interest in sex. They were sexual together a few times a week, and they felt great about that. Remember those days? I have the right to remain silent. <laughs> Everything I say can and will be used against me. My wife is listening, so let's just move right along here, Jane. <laughs> Over the past... <laughs> I do. I remember them. Okay. And I've read about this sort okay, of thing. Okay, we're done. We're done. <laughs> I'll keep going, Bill. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Over the past year or so, Alex has just not been as interested in sex as they were before. Alex still finds Chris pretty attractive and feels love for Chris, but just doesn't think about sex very often anymore. When Chris wants to initiate sex, Alex often turns to Chris and turns Chris down by saying either I've got a headache or I'm just not interested. And sometimes 
Alex wants to cuddle or give Chris a hug or a kiss, but worries that it might turn into more. Now, Alex has just kind of responded to all this by avoiding even general physical touch or affection, especially because it might be misperceived and Chris might get turned on and then feel rejected. Alex is really worried that there's something terribly wrong inside of them, like they're broken. And Chris is worried that Alex might have feelings for somebody else. The more Chris tries to initiate sex, the more Alex feels pressure and stress around sex. The more Alex turns Chris away, the more hurt and frustrated Chris becomes. It feels to them like this never-ending cycle without a solution. Okay, so one of them's into it, one of them's not. That's the... You got it. And if this is the pattern after just three years... Yeah, just imagine what... They both gonna... worry. What's it going to be like for them to sustain a long-term relationship? Yeah, I don't, I don't give this... I don't give intimacy. this... I don't give this... What this, this example, this hypothetical as being... Uh, doesn't sound relationship long for this world. Well, they came to a sex therapist Aha. to talk about this. And here's the story, Bill. Do you think it's common, first of all? Do I think this is common? Yeah. For uh, couples to have this kind of discrepancy yes, between no who, who, who's, and yeah. who's into yeah. it and who's not, yeah. do I think it's common? I'm going to go back to that. I have the right to remain silent thing. No, no, well, I, I, I would have said no. I don't I, think so. I, I, I would think, actually I think, counter and say yes. Yeah, I'd say it's very common. See, Dan, really? Dan yeah. is on to it. There's a, there, Dan, but Dan knows something sort of instinctively, right? Because there's very few empirical studies, yet sex therapists have observed this kind of difference in desire, we call it desire discrepancy, differences, that it tops the list of reasons people seek out sex therapy. Well, that's, that strikes me as kind of odd because you think that at the beginning, which is where you started, people were totally into each yeah. other, and they may yeah. be a little less into each right. other as time goes on, but uh, why would one person tend to be less in, interested in... We in go that? through cycles. And I would argue, and I don't know if this Go is based ahead. on anything, but I think, yes, humans get through cycles, and when it's repetitive, they lose that sort of lust and desire because it just feels like a routine instead of something new nice. and different. Well, the brain does love novelty, Dan. You're absolutely right about that. And the newness that you're talking about, Bill, may have worn off by three years. Hmm. Sometimes, sometimes it's six months. Sometimes it's two years. Well, there is an old Chinese <laughs> proverb, right? Uh-oh. No, that if you put a bean in a jar, ah, every yes. time you uh, um, did it, the first year of the relationship or of marriage, and that right. at that point in history, That's right. and then you took one out after the first year, every time you did it, the jar would never be empty. Mm, I love that. I love that, Bill. So keep that in mind, Bill. This is going to bode well for the rest of our conversation this morning. Okay, because so far it's been like just the chalk screeching well, on the blackboard, but I'm hanging in there with you, James. Well, there's a new study um, from the uh, researchers at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, and they found that desired differences are long-term couples' number one source of chronic sexual distress. And they interviewed 117 long-term married heterosexual couples. So what, tell, me, tell me the answer. I mean, why is it that one, one becomes less interested but not you, the other? I'll tell you in a sec. I'll tell you in a sec. You're asking all the right questions. This is so good. I've never seen this excited before. I never did either. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're on to something, Dan. I know. Why His face hasn't turned purple. Why don't you and I just take a break and let him go through whatever it is he needs to go through? Because there is a cycle, as you all said. I, yeah, yeah, right. I, I didn't know there was a cycle, so I'm... I'm, I'm so, I, 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 
desire discrepancy affects all different kinds of couples, all different kinds of genders, sexual orientations, cultures, religions, and ages, and length of relationship. But most importantly, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the relationship. In fact, as we were just saying, it's quite natural for people to have different needs and different interests around all sorts of things, including their sexuality. And as we move out of the honeymoon phase, which I was saying lasts like maybe six months to two years, sex can fall lower and lower and lower on the priority list and may start to feel like a chore, like doing the laundry or an obligation for some people. You're it, kind of a downer here, Jane. I'm getting there. Don't worry. You know me. I always go back up by the end. If you give me a chance, I'm excited. It doesn't feel that spontaneous anymore. And it doesn't seem to be as fun or as exciting as it felt early on. And when that happens, sex becomes less frequent, and even physical touch can stop altogether. And that's when other problems could begin. In fact, when it's not addressed, you know, desire discrepancy could lead to sexual pain, erection difficulties, resentment, hostility, divorce. You get the picture. So what does it mean? It means that we're going to look at desire today from two different vantage points. Spontaneous desire, or that early on limerence, excitement, novelty in the beginning of a relationship, and what the researchers are calling responsive desire. Any idea what responsive desire means, Bill? Well, I've I'm been nervous. doing so well on these quizzes so far today, I think I should go back to the right to remain I silent think you thing. Should. Yeah. Good idea. <laughs> so, dealing with desire means that both partners have to deal with it, not just the no person or the yes person. And it means that they have to work on it, not just as an individual, but as a relationship. And issue. does that switch off? Could. It could. And, and certainly. Does, does the yes become the no and the no become the yes? Listen, sometimes. Other stressors get in the way. Think about what's going on in the world today and some of the really horrible stuff we're dealing with. And those stressors can put a damper on someone's desire to even enjoy an idea about sexual encounter. And because individuals are, well, how to put this individual, how those events may affect one true, true. Mem member right. of, a, of a couple right. um, it could be vastly different than the effect on the other. Totally, and, and, and it could bring up past events or traumas that they thought they had dealt with in the past, that kind of thing. So what happens when spontaneous desire isn't working anymore? Bill, do you remember Masters and Johnson? The book, of course. Okay, great, great, great. So they for those for those of us for those of our listeners who may not be 150 years old, like you want to we tell, are. <laughs> want to well, tell them who Masters yeah, and Johnson were? They kind were? of invented sex therapy. The and they were field. a couple. They were a couple. She was, uh, you know, working in the lab, and he was Dr. Bill <laughs> Masters, and she was Virginia Johnson. But together, their model of human sexual response from 1966 is the most commonly one referred to. You start with physical excitement and arousal, things like genital swelling, lubrication, erection. It was all in the body. But then, did you ever hear of Helen Singer Kaplan. This is where Buzz would have said, yes, of course, I've studied her. <laughs> I, I wrote her biography. Buzz, if you're listening, I wish you were here today. In 1979, she sort of added a new dimension. She found that her clients needed some mental interest or desire before bodily arousal. And today, her model is the one that most people think about when they talk about desire. But then, in 2000, 
a very cool physician with a focus on sexual medicine, Dr. Rosemary Bassan, gave us a whole new look at understanding sexual response. She introduced this idea of what might happen with responsive desire. She found that for many people, sexual desire is an outcome of physiology or physiolog physiological arousal. What she meant was that interest in sex doesn't just come out of nowhere and then lead to physical arousal. So like if you're in your teens or 20s or 30s, spontaneous desire is yours. It's your gambit. It's very, very easy to imagine. And this problem of desire discrepancy may not be as common. But my focus has found that people in long-term relationships or people in their later years, like you and I, Bill, 60s, <laughs> 70s, even older than us, chances are they've dealt with differences in desire, and it's traded off between the two. And the answer is, the Dr. Fleischer? The answer is, begin everything by remembering you are responsible for your own pleasure. You are the expert of your own body. Intercourse may not be the goal for everyone. There's no one-size-fits-all approach. Use what works for you. And remember that consent is the key. Begin by stimulus that might be responsive to other kinds of senses. We have been speaking with Dr. Jane Fleischman. She is our show's resident sexologist. This has been Sex Matters with Dr. Jane Fleischman. We'll be right back. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at $80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Massachusetts football returns to McGuirk Alumni Stadium for the last time this season this Saturday. It's UMass and UConn at noon. And as a show of appreciation, you'll enjoy an in-stadium fan fest when the gates open, including a cash bar, DJ, games, and a lot more. UMass will also celebrate their graduating class and their contributions to the UMass football program. Catch the Minutemen this Saturday at noon as they take on UConn. Get your tickets online at umassathletics.com tickets. Let's experience fitness together. 
Hi, this is Jessica. And at Fitness Together, we offer personal trainers and customized workouts either in studio or virtually. Located in Northampton and Amherst, we're here to help you reach your goals, be it weight loss, recovery and rehab, improving health, or simply living well. Getting fit, you'll have the energy to do what you love. Visit us at Fitness Together, Amherst, or Northampton and become a part of our community today. Fitness Together, your journey to wellness starts with us. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Such a pleasure to have back with us in the studio today, the Reverend Peter Ives. Of course, Peter was the founder of the Reverend and the Rabbi segment. Now have faith on Talk the Talk. Reverend Peter Ives, this past Sunday, I went to one of the most moving services of any denomination in any house of worship that I've ever been in. You were installed as Pastor Emeritus at First Churches here in Northampton. Tell us about that. Tell us about this honor and this privilege that has been bestowed on you. Thank you, Bill. I'm so glad you were there with Dale, and I really treasure um, when you do come. And I really treasured what happened last Sunday when over 100 people turned out at First Churches to establish and to help me to become the pastor emeritus of the church, which is a title that helps uh, me as a former pastor, helps the church, um, because I'm so involved in the entire community, and to be the pastor emeritus gives me an opportunity to do things in this community that are so valuable to me, um, and when Sarah, um, our pastor, our, re- our pastor, um, pronounced me as Pastor Emeritus, um, it gave me a way of demonstrating to the entire community how much the First Churches has meant to me over the years um, and all the possibilities of what one can do as a pastor at First Churches which stands right at the center of the community, is there all the time um, and, and very much um, needed uh, with being in the forefront of downtown Northampton. Now, Reverend Peter Ives, you were the pastor at First Churches for many years. That's right. And then in, in accord with the uh, uh, tenets of uh, the religion, uh, you, like many mainstream Protestant religions uh, could not be the, the pastor or not have that leadership role in in the uh, in, in first churches, uh, and yet you have maintained this presence in the community. You are a force in this community, a force for good and understanding and righteousness. I'm wondering when you look back at your career as a pastor, including your two decades, I think, in yeah. first churches. Yeah. Um, what what do you take the most pride in? What do you look back and say? oh, I'm so glad we did, and it, for you, it often is we, the community, did that. Um, because I'm, again, Bill, right at, always have been, right at the center of the community. I, I'm right down the road from the mayor's office. I am always uh, available uh, when there's a problem out on the streets of Northampton. I spend a lot of time uh, with street people here in this city, they, many of them know me very well. And so all of this opportunity that I'm given 
as Pastor Emeritus and as a pastor in this community is enormously, enormously helpful to everything I believe in, Bill, everything I believe in, and that is that a city like Northampton needs um, someone who is a community-like minister uh, that reaches out to everyone, everyone, and that includes the um, uh, people who are from other faiths as well. And what I have liked so much is working with you, Bill, um, because you represent the other faiths uh, in this community, and, and you do this so well. And I can't thank you enough for the role that you play. I, you know, I, uh, Israel is very important to me. Uh, Justin Rab, Rabbi Justin David is very important with me because uh, I, I, I've been to Israel. I've, I've, I've seen um, Kibbutz Re'im. I know what's going on in Israel well. And so I'm so proud that I can be part of that community and part of the Christian community. And that means a lot to me. And one more thing, Bill. You mean a lot to me. You, over these years, 13 years and more, have been so important to my life, to my family's life. Uh, and you have played a role that has been so important to our entire community, but especially to my family and to me. I love you, Reverend Peter Oz. My name is Silas Koff. I have long been a friend of Riverside Industries in East Hampton. For more than 50 years, they have empowered and supported adults with developmental disabilities. People are treated with dignity and respect, and the Riverside team helps them to reach their goals and even find employment in our area. You may not realize it, but you encounter people every day in our community that receive training and support from Riverside Industries. To learn more about the fine work that Riverside Industries does, go to rsi.org. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock. After that, at least 50 hostages are set to be released, all of them women and children. An American three-year-old girl could be among those freed. Her cousin, Noah Naftali, spoke to CBS Mornings. We are cautiously hopeful. Um, every day, 46 days since October 7th has felt like October 7th for us, yeah. as we wonder and, and pray and as our hearts are with our little cousin. CBS News correspondent MTS Tayeb reports on the Palestinian perspective from the West Bank. The people we've been speaking to here in Ramallah say they don't want a pause in the violence, but they want an end to the war completely and the release of 
all Palestinians being held in Israeli jails, not just some women and children. Now, according to the respected Palestinian prisoners' rights group, Adamir, as of this week, there are around 200 Palestinian boys, 75 women and five girls currently behind bars in Israel. AAA says Thanksgiving holiday travel will be the third busiest on record, with 55.5 million Americans expected to take a trip. Tens of millions of Americans will go over the river and through the woods for Thanksgiving, including Kelsey Preston. I have a feeling that there are going to be a lot more people out this year, especially because COVID restrictions have eased up a little bit, so it's easier to travel. Traveling by car will be much cheaper than last Thanksgiving. Average gas prices are about 40 cents cheaper than a year ago. Jim Crisula, CBS News. Two men were killed and five hurt in a shooting in North Philadelphia. Interim Police Commissioner John Stanford. This is a block that has had some known uh, narcotic activity. Um, it, it's not a, a block that we aren't familiar with. And so uh, with that being said, I, I would say that it's probably something connected to narcotics trade. The tech world welcomes this development. Just days after an attempted coup, Sam Altman will return as CEO of OpenAI. The company tweeting that it has an agreement in principle for him to return alongside a new board. Correspondent Stacey Lynn reporting. Health experts warn the holidays could bring an onslaught of respiratory illnesses. CBS News medical contributor Dr. Celine Gounder. It's not too late to get your flu shot, your COVID shot, and if you're eligible, your RSV shot. But some of the other things you can do, uh, you can be improving indoor air ventilation, so opening doors and windows when it's possible, getting one of those air filtration units, wearing masks when you're in public transportation, for example, or other crowded places. Stocks are up. The Dow is up 72 points. This is CBS News. Make the hiring process work for you. With Indeed's end-to-end hiring solution, you can attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Start at Indeed.com slash credits. Thousands of stores across the country are pulling brand-name cold and allergy products off the shelves because an FDA advisory panel recently determined that a drug they contain, oral phenylephrine, is ineffective as a nasal decongestant. Navage offers a drug-free solution that's fast and highly effective at relieving nasal congestion caused by colds and allergies. Ask for Navage at Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, Target, or find us online at navage.com. Navage, N-A-V-A-G-E. Clean nose, healthy life. Hi, this is Scott Trout of Cordell & Cordell. There are a lot of great dads out there. Sometimes those dads get divorced. For more than 30 years, we have represented men in divorce, confronting the pitfalls that could devastate your finances or harm your family relationships. While every situation is different, our goal is to get the best outcome for you and your kids. Visit CordellCordell.com to take the first step. Schedule an appointment with one of Cordell & Cordell's Boston area attorneys, 10 Cabot Road, Suite 210, Medford, Massachusetts, 02155. Today marks 45 years since one of the most famous Thanksgiving shows in TV history. CBS News correspondent Peter King takes a look back. It was 1978 and a new CBS... For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The cities of Northampton and East Hampton will receive a combined $5 million from the state as part of efforts to decarbonize affordable housing and make it sustainable. The money is part of the first round of the Affordable Housing Deep Energy Retrofit Grant Program. $2 million will go to Valley Community Development Corp. for its plan to redevelop a former Northampton nursing home on Bridge Road into 60 affordable apartments. In East Hampton, another $3 million will go to Beacon Communities Development for the Treehouse Community Project. A civil lawsuit has been filed by Eric Granger of Munson, a minority shareholder of Treehouse Brewing Co., 
alleging two majority shareholders in the company are paid excessive salaries and secretly invested in real estate. Trias co-founders Nathan Lanier and Damian Goodrow have been accused of withholding financial information from Granger. Granger has been deprived of real financial benefit, according to the lawsuit, from the growing company. The 14th annual March for the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts ended in Greenfield yesterday, having raised $458,000. Here's Senator Joe Comerford on why she joined the march. I march because I believe in the work of the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts and the other food banks across the Commonwealth, meeting the immediate demands of hunger and food insecurity of our neighbors. Governor Maury Healy met marchers at the finish line in Greenfield. We're going to do everything we can as an administration to address food insecurity in this state. Nobody should be hungry in this state. The money raised will help provide one and a half million meals to people in need. We had some showers this morning. They are starting to calm down as we get closer to the afternoon. We're going to be seeing some highs mainly in the mid to high 40s evening. Thankfully, temperatures are going to cool down as it's going to be mostly cloudy with no rain. Temperatures mainly in the mid to high 30s. And Thanksgiving is going to be a lovely sunny day with temperatures in the high 40s. I'm Jack Way with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. We welcome back to our studio attorney Luke Ryan, who is a partner in the prestigious law firm here in Northampton, now called Still. Still, uh, Sasson Turnbull, Ryan and Hoos. David Hoos, of course, is as famous, although it's getting pretty close here, Luke Ryan. Luke Ryan, David, who's probably the two most famous criminal defense lawyers in Massachusetts, certainly in the western part of the state. And we also have with us uh, Bill Tuman, who is the founder and head instructor at River Valley uh, Taekwondo. And they are with us because we want you to learn about, know about this fascinating case that will be argued before the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court a week from Monday, December 4th. Luke, tell us the outline of the case, and then we'll get to these issues, and then we'll find out why... Bill Tuman, who is the founder and head instructor of River Valley Taekwondo, is with us. Tell us the facts. Sure. So the name of the case is Commonwealth versus Kanjura, and it's set to be argued at the Supreme Judicial Court on uh, December 4th. And it's really a pretty simple uh, case. There was a... And stop for one second. And you have written an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, on behalf of... I've written an amicus brief on behalf of River Valley Taekwondo and the Massachusetts Association of Criminal Defense Attorneys. And I want to share with our listeners something that I was telling you just before we came on the air. This brief is brilliant. What you've done is a masterpiece. Really, it is. But back Well, to- that's very kind of you. So anyways, the case... Uh, stems from a uh, police stop of a motor vehicle uh, and a search that led to the discovery of a switchblade in possession of the operator. And under Massachusetts General Laws Chapter 269, Section 10B, it is illegal in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to carry a switchblade on your person or in your motor vehicle. I was at the mall uh, some time ago. I'm looking in a case. There are knives for sale. And I said, wait a second, I had a case like this. I had someone in Northampton District Court, and they were accused of having a knife just like that. So I asked the salesperson, I said, wait a second, you can sell it, I can buy it, but if I carry it out to my car, I'm violating a serious criminal law? That can't be right. And In fact, that is the law. That is two and a half years to the House of Correction is what your exposure is should you transport it from the point of sale to the, your vehicle. So it's legal to sell it. 
It's illegal to, for a store to carry it. It's illegal for me to buy it. And if a cop stops me, he can, I can end up in jail for two and a half years for having in my possession something that was legal for me to buy? Yes. That's a stupid law. Yeah. At, at the heart of all this, we, we're dealing with some pretty stupid uses of the, the criminal law. Okay. So let's go back for a minute. You write in your brief at great length and really compelling. It's, you tell a story. It's fascinating. I didn't know it. Uh, the uh, criminalization of various uh, I want to call them instruments, I'm not sure I want to call them weapons, is basically based on racism. Tell, her, tell us about that. Sure. So back in 2022, the United States Supreme Court uh, issued this decision uh, uh, called Bruin and, and really changed the analysis for Second Amendment cases and said that if you're going to evaluate any law that uh, purports to um, touch on the Second Amendment, you need to conduct a historical analysis to show that there's a, a historical basis for this restriction. So what this brief argues is that if you look at the history of arms restrictions, both in the Commonwealth and across the country, they are largely rooted in racism and xenophobia, um, starting from colonial times up until the present day. Tell us more about the details about that. I was fascinated to read about it. It's a history I did not know. Sure. So colonial times uh, and founding era all across the, the colonies into the new United States, different states and colonies passed laws prohibiting uh, the possession, sale of, of any arms, and arms would include guns, knives, canes, dogs, to Native Americans or, or black people, both uh, who were enslaved and who were free black people. And, and that was really like the, the biggest and most um, uh, pervasive uh, restriction on arms throughout the, the early Americas. So, to summarize, and tell me if I do this poorly, what the law, writ large, tried to accomplish is to make sure that marginalized people, people who had reason to be angry, to feel oppressed, should not have weapons, lest they somehow use them against those who are oppressing them. Correct. And that was, those were facially part of the law themselves. They identified marginalized, disenfranchised, vulnerable people for exclusion from what every other colonist, new citizen of a new country had the right to do, which was to carry certain things on them for their self-defense. Now, I, I just uh, brilliantly uh, characterized this law as stupid, uh, but I think that's quite accurate, actually. And I was struck in your brief, Luke Ryan, by the fact you included that carrying a nunchucks, we can talk about that in just a second, carrying them in Massachusetts, you can go to jail for quite a long time just for carrying them. And what makes Massachusetts different, why is Massachusetts different from all other states? Because 49 other states say it's not a crime, but here it's a crime. Let me turn, if I might, for a few moments anyway, to, to Bill Tuman, who is the founder and head instructor for uh, uh, River Valley Taekwondo. Why does that law affect you? Why does it affect practitioners of Taekwondo? And in answering that, give us a explanation, if you would, please. What is Taekwondo? <clears throat> well, I'll start with the easy one. Taekwondo is a Korean martial art that is similar to 
karate from Okinawa in Japan or a gongfu from China in that it uses percussive style um, techniques, punches, kicks, blocks, uh, to defend a person with empty hands, open, uh, open hands with no weapons, in other words. And Taekwondo and those other martial arts that I cited are often complemented by practice with weapons. And so to answer your larger question, these laws have the unintended consequences of keeping people from practicing these uh, enhancements and are, and are interesting pursuits um, that have a cultural aspect and, to my mind, are harmless in our society. <laughs> um, and it just keeps people from practicing those in a legitimate way. They have to travel to neighboring states. They have to do it in their basement away from the windows or, you know, just go to strange lengths to practice things that it's, it's a stretch to imagine that they could be harmful to the general populace. Now, are uh, uh, nunchaku, nunchucks, uh, are they illegal to possess in Massachusetts? Or like the knife, you can possess them, you just can't actually possess them from someplace where you might get caught having them? I defer on all issues of law to Luke, but I see him nodding. So <laughs> it sounds like it's probably similar to the uh, knife situation that you described. Luke? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So, oh, let me go back one se one second, if I might, uh, back to uh, Bill Tuman. Uh, River Valley Taekwondo, where is it? We're in Florence, um, just up from that little plaza that has the Great Wall Restaurant and Masa Mexicana, and we are in a former elementary school building. It's a brick, big brick building that has these great windows that face the road, um, and we've been there since 2015. Let me go back to Luke Ryan, Attorney Luke Ryan, who has written the amicus brief, and again, it, it is brilliant. You should do yourself a favor. I know most people will think that legal uh, writing is not what they want to spend their time on. This reads, it just reads. It's a, just a great story that you tell in this brief, Luke. Uh, I, I'd like to know a bit more about what it is that you hope to see uh, come from come from the Supreme Judicial Court uh, when the decision is rendered after the argument won't be rendered that day, but some months after the argument, which will be a week from Monday on December 4th, uh, what do you hope the Supreme Judicial Court to rule? Well, my hope is, is that the court can take this direction from the United States Supreme Court and, and look at the way in which our, our laws have been influenced by uh, are, are rooted in white supremacy, as I was kind of telling the story of the evolution. Right, and you talked about the anti-Italian bias, the uh, anti-people of color bias. Uh, marginalized groups have been targeted by these laws to see that they don't have weapons, um, even if they make no sense and even if they are enforced in a totally discriminatory manner. Tell us more about that. Right. So I, I think I started by talking about this early history of weapons restrictions, which in the text of the law singled out these groups. With the passage of the 14th Amendment in the wake of the Civil War, that became uh, illegal. It was the Equal Protection Clause, and the 14th Amendment says you can't do that anymore. And so what essentially happened in the... Um, in the South, as uh, the the legislatures down there decided what we're going to do is we're going to pass these laws that apply to everybody. We're, we're only going to enforce them against uh, certain groups that we don't want to have weapons. So that was like the next stage that took place, where they, they passed laws pro prohibiting the carrying of firearms, but they only enforced them against uh, people of color. 
the other thing that they did was they they looked at particular weapons that were associated with particular groups. So the most the biggest one that I get into the brief is the stiletto, which was um, believed to be something that Italian Americans possessed. And in the kind of nativist parts of the country, they looked to the South and how they were dealing with the problem of keeping firearms and, and other weapons away from the black population. And they said, look, we can do the same thing. We can basically outlaw these weapons uh, that are associated with this new group coming in from uh, Europe that, that we don't like and essentially have a facially neutral law that doesn't single them out. But by focusing on this weapon, we can accomplish our objective of taking this uh, politically powerless group and subjecting them to uh, criminal penalties in ways that won't apply to the larger white population. And not only politically powerless, but people who were viewed as not white. Correct. Right. There's one of the articles I cite in the uh, brief is, uh, was in the New York Times, and it's how Italians became white. And there's uh, great scholarship on uh, different ethnic groups, including the Irish, uh, who uh, their struggle to attain so-called white status was not something that happened when they uh, arrived at Ellis Island. There were years and years where, where they were treated in a way that was um, uh, definitely below the, the, the so-called native population. You mentioned the prohibition on uh, uh, stilettos. What is that kind of knife? It's, it's for, to get really technical here, it's a long pointy knife uh, that dates back to the, the 15th, 16th century that um, was used for, for piercing or getting around armor. And it was something that uh, down in New Orleans in particular, as there was a big Italian uh, uh, population that arrived there after the Civil War, um, Italian Americans, new Italian Americans for self-defense would often carry this weapon with them and they, it just became an associated with that group. Is it that different from a switchblade? Does one blade come out from the side, one blade come out from the front? I'm, pardon my ignorance. It's different in the sense that it, it's a fixed blade. A switchblade is something you press a button and boom, there, there the knife appears where it wasn't. A, a stiletto is... Um, something that is, it, it, it's always there. It's not like a butterfly knife or a switchblade. So it's just a knife. Correct. But it's illegal. Right. It's subjected. You, you, cannot, you can get a license to carry some really, really scary guns in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, but you cannot get a license to carry uh, a stiletto or the, the nunchucks or nunchaku that, um, that Bill was talking about. That is something that there is no, you can't go to the chief of police and say, hey, I'm practicing this cool martial art. I'd love to be able to, you know, see it, you know, enhance my practice for cultural, historical reasons. You just don't have that option. Okay, so at the uh, risk of invoking a, uh, a phrase from uh, my my background, why is this knife different from all other knives? Um, again, it, it it's it's di- these are different in the sense that they're associated with different ethnic groups. I know, but what, what makes it? I mean, I, I take it if I go walking around the street with a uh, a, a butter knife or a uh, uh, dinner knife. Uh, I'm not so sure now about a steak knife. Is that illegal, or what? What what makes what makes a a knife illegal? What makes it illegal is having people in lawmakers say it's illegal and pass a law, and so they specifically in this statute that's at the heart of this criminal case have a list of about a dozen or so weapons 
including other East Asian martial art weapons. Bill could talk about like what are commonly referred to as Chinese throwing stars uh, are illegal to carry in, in, in Massachusetts. All these other, they're, they're very kind of esoteric and not, there's, there's no real rhyme or reason why certain things are illegal and certain things aren't. Studded bracelets are illegal in Massachusetts under this statute. What? <laughs> what did you just say? They are illegal. If you have a bracelet, like, like common goth accessory, uh, 20 years ago, there was the, the Essex County District Attorney used to routinely go to the Essex County Mall and point out teenagers who had this apparel on, and, and, and it would be shakedowns. They'd, they'd charge people or they'd confiscate them and say, you're, you're breaking the law. This is unbelievable. We are going to continue our conversation with attorney Luke Ryan and Bill Tuman, who is the founder and head instructor at River Valley Taekwondo. We live in a really stupid commonwealth in some ways, which we'll explore further right after this. the talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday local burgers and fries? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Local burgers and fries, spiked milkshakes and more on the corner in downtown Northampton and on the main drag in Keene. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Go green on Black Friday at Winesick Nursery in Hadley. Get your fresh-cut green Christmas tree. Pick up a wreath made by the Winesick Elves or a festive poinsettia. Get greens for the mantle or holiday centerpiece or green-filled long boxes for the cemetery. Find gifts for those with green thumbs at Winesick's retail store. Get plants, pottery, garden tools, and novelties. Wrap up a bird feeder with seed. Get knickknacks, plant hangers, glass or planters, and gift cards. Go green on Black Friday at Winesick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at winesicknursery.com. Does your city have a problem with cockroaches? Pestnome ranks American cities based on the number of homes with the insects and the number of available pest control personnel. Houston is at the top of the list, followed by San Antonio, Tampa, Phoenix, and Las Vegas. If you're flying over the holidays, keep close tabs on your baggage. The Transportation Department Baggage Complaint Database is averaging about 300,000 of those grievances for the last three months. With the expected crush of passengers this week, the odds of your bags arriving with you are not as good as you might think. Subaru is recalling nearly 96,000 2021 Crosstrex and 2022 Foresters and model year 2021 to 2023 Legacies and Outbacks. An insufficient weld may allow water to enter the inhibitor switch, causing it to fail. That can cause problems with backup lights. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Northampton-based attorney Luke Ryan and River Valley Taekwondo founder and head instructor Bill Tuman. So, Luke, during the last minute or two, we were talking 
and Dan Torres raised the issue with you about this law that the Supreme Judicial Court is being asked to declare unconstitutional, the law which uh, prohibits the possession of nunchucks and stilettos and all sorts of martial arts uh, apparatus. They're illegal in Massachusetts, unlike every other state in the country. The Supreme Judicial Court solicited Miki, that is a friend of the court briefs, and you have filed a, I think, absolutely brilliant brief on behalf of the Massachusetts uh, Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and River Valley uh, Taekwondo. So all that having been said, what came up during our discussion was that this is being viewed by the court as a potential Second Amendment problem. How are nunchucks, stars, and the like, a Second Amendment problem? So the Second Amendment, of course, for obvious reasons, is commonly present-day associated with firearms. But the, um, the text of the, uh, the Second Amendment isn't the right to bear firearms. It's the right to bear arms. And historically, traditionally, um, knives and other weapons have kind of been viewed as coming under the, um, that term, arms. It's, it's, they are tools for self-defense. And while... Um, you know, present day, I think Bill referred to the fact, you know, nobody's carrying around nunchucks for self-defense purposes in present day when, you know, people are defending themselves with these lethal uh, firearms. Uh, but they do come under that uh, Second Amendment because of their historical basis as something people used to defend themselves. The other issue we were discussing was what makes a stiletto, which is prohibited by this statute, it makes it a crime to, to possess one? Or to carry one? Carry one. It makes it a crime to carry one. So when you buy it legally at the store, you're committing a crime when you actually take it in the box out to your car. What I was fascinated to hear is that the statute actually doesn't define what a stiletto is. We're just supposed to know that that knife can send you to jail, but this other knife won't send you to jail. How are we supposed to know that? Uh, stilettos are like pornography, uh, and we all know them when we see it, is uh, the, the famous uh, phrase from uh, Supreme Court Justice. So yeah, there's, it doesn't define it, but I think if you were charged with it, there would be a, uh, somebody would testify that in their experience, this qualifies as a stiletto. This is Dan. Um, I want to know, in the current Massachusetts law, uh, is there an exemption for people who might use this for karate or for other uh, sources? Like, can the law be somehow written to be like, okay, it's illegal to walk into the mall or in a public setting and carry ninchucks or, and other stars or whatever and stilettos, but not if you're using it in a certain context. Does that make sense? It, I mean, it does in the law as currently constructed. These are per se dangerous weapons that cannot be carried ever. Across the board ever. So really you can buy them, but you just can't be in possession of them and you can be arrested for it. You, you can't have possessed them outside the home. You can't carry them, possess a car them outside or, the home or on your person if you're yeah outside the home. So it's illegal to drive back to your home with the weapon, so I'll put that in air quotes, that you just bought legally at the mall. Right, as, or somewhere else. As Bill said earlier, like if I wanted to go to a, a class and have get instruction from him or someone like him on on the use of it, like the getting to class, being in class, being outside the home, carrying them, that is a crime punishable by up to two and a half years in the House of Correction. So, Bill Tuman, let's go back to you. You're the founder and head instructor at River Valley Taekwondo. How are these uh, 
instruments, weapons? Uh, how, how are they used in martial arts? Well, you know, our Taekwondo school uses only a small subset of weapons in our training, and the prohibited weapons are not part of our, our dojang's uh, curriculum. But there are yeah, others. I bet you a lawyer would have a few <laughs> things to say about that. I've been advised <laughs> to, to steer away from those. Um, but historically, our school has not used those. Um, so this is not really affect us directly, but there are definitely martial arts schools where these, some of these weapons are part of the curriculum that are required to advance to certain levels to have certain experiences, and they, it can't be done here. So tell us how nunchucks are used. I mean, what is their uh, actual uh, valid uh, use uh, in martial arts or in self-defense? Tell us about that. These are a famous weapon. For those who don't know what they are, they're two sticks that are joined by a section of rope or chain, and you hold them and you can pass them from one hand to the other, swing them around your body in impressive and really telegenic ways. Uh, they look great on film. Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee did very well by them. Bruce Lee made a career on them, and of course, many other talents. Um, Ninja Turtles use them, and they're just all over the place. They're one of the classic martial arts weapons that look cool and that. You know, if I were a teenager, I'd probably want to pick them up and fool around with them. Um, they're just very appealing visually. And, and are they for sale here locally, or you have to go out of state to buy them? You know, I've never really been interested in this particular weapon, so I have not combed the uh, back alleys and car trunks of the region looking for them. But um, I know that there are wholesale distributors that we buy martial arts gear, sparring equipment and things like that from, and they will not ship them to Massachusetts. And... Some of these other weapons that we've that have been described here today, the stars or other things, can you tell us a bit more about that? Because you are way outside anything I know anything about. I think I'm probably not alone in that. In the middle school metal shop, I on the sly uh, used the tin snips to fashion some shuriken <laughs> when no one was looking. Um, but you know, I, I I don't think you can buy these in Massachusetts, it, um, and um, I've certainly I've never sought them. But again, this is not a thing that I'm especially interested in personally, so I've never really had an interest in finding them. Let me go back to Attorney Luke Ryan for a moment, if I might. Luke, is the stiletto argument at the Supreme Judicial Court and the nunchucks argument, uh, the nunchucku argument, are they, is it the same? Uh, and is the request of the court the same? The, those two particular weapons, because the underlying case only involved the switchblade, aren't uh, per se on, on, the, on the table in terms of what the court's going to do. But I thought it was important for the court to realize that the the basis for the, the switchblade ban is, is similar to the, the basis for the, the nunchaku ban, which literally happened in the 1970s in four states, including the Commonwealth, because some cops in Baltimore were scared that kids were starting to play around with these weapons that Bruce Lee had popularized. So Arizona, California, and uh, Massachusetts and New York outlawed this, and it was based really on a Newsweek article from 1973 that reads today as very, very racist. It, they, they called it, it was called killer sticks, and there was no documented case of anybody ever using one to hurt anybody. It was all vibes and, and fear. It had kind of this yellow peril kind of undertones to it, but it caused our state and three others to criminalize this uh, instrument that is inarguably less lethal than every single firearm that exists in the world. This case is being argued at the Supreme Judicial Court, December 4th. Did the court take this case directly? Does its procedural avenue to getting 
of uh, how it got to the court. Does that indicate anything to you about the court's interest in the underlying issues? It, it does, in a sense. The uh, this is not a case. Some the common case is one that um, is dealt with at the trial level, and if it's anything other than a first degree murder case, its usual stop is at the appeals court. Um, when constitutional issues are at play, sometimes lawyers ask for direct appellate review at the Supreme Judicial Court. That's what happened in this case, and that's what the Supreme Judicial Court decided to do. In other words, they didn't ask for the intermediate court to kind of step in first and see how they were going to resolve it. They took it upon themselves to to deal with this issue. And then the Supreme Judicial Court did something that is not un all that unusual, but does show that the court has real questions about what the issues in the case are. And the court in this case, as I understand it, asked for submissions, amici or amicus submissions, uh, indicating, I think, that the court says there are a lot of groups out there or individuals who might really want to weigh in on this issue. Right. And that, that includes the attorney general's office filed one in this case. There was a night's... What does the AG say? Uh, the AG, I think, is um, reading between the lines. They, they think the case should get remanded back to the trial court to engage in the historical analysis that the Supreme United States Supreme Court says has to happen. I think what they're fearful of is a, a decision that would imperil the, the, the firearm licensing scheme that we have in Massachusetts, which is comparable to the one in New York that was struck down by the, Supreme, the United States Supreme Court. So I think that... Is, is what I see going on with the uh, Attorney General's office position. Explain this to me. Knives, in my opinion, can be really dangerous. Um, and I, I've seen some pretty terrible things happen with knives, uh, often not on purpose. Um, and I'm wondering if, and, and in my criminal practice, and I'm wondering if uh, you have some thoughts about how the Supreme Judicial Court can declare this statute unconstitutional for a whole variety of reasons and yet not throw out the baby with the bathwater in terms of uh, public safety. Or maybe the court, the Supreme Court has already done that when, because it's, well, <laughs> said most regulations of firearms will not stand. Right. I mean, I think what it's important to um, point out is that it is still against the law to use any weapon uh, to assault and batter somebody or to threaten somebody. I'm, I'm sure the, the cases that you've had that where bad things happen were, were knives that it's perfectly legal to possess. So what we're talking about is, is, a, is a possession, right? Not that the law still prohibits the, the, um, the use of these in a violent, uh, non-self-defense way. And so I, I don't think that there's any real value in, in maintaining a law that on top of everything else, just gets enforced in a way that is discriminatory. Bill Tuman, who is the founder and head instructor at River Valley Taekwondo, will give you the final word. You know, I think the benefit for these weapons uh, practice is similar to what you'd see with a gymnast, where a gymnast um, might start by tumbling just on the floor and learn all sorts of beautiful, challenging ways of controlling their body and doing beautiful things. Um, and that inherently has value, but at a certain point, they'll want to introduce these props or enhancements like a pommel horse or parallel bars or rings and balance beams. And these things all have their own distinct character and present different challenges and present different ways of moving, different ways of inhabiting one's body. 
and expressing beauty. And martial arts weapons, I think, are similar to that. They take a core set of skills and amplify them and present different challenges. Um, and so for those who are studying traditional martial arts weapons, um, self-defense or harming people is close to the last thing on their minds. And th this is almost like shifting analogies a little bit. It's like those tavern puzzles with a bunch of twisted nails that you try to unscramble. It's just a, it's a challenge. And I would add, it's also a cultural dimension. It, it adds uh, a way for people in the, in the West, in the US, to understand a culture that is different. And there's a whole set of values and practices that are baked into the practice of these of these weapons. And those are really interesting and, you know, can, can only be experienced in these, um, you know, specific environments with these specific tools. So they're, they're useful for people to have those experiences. Bill Tuman, founder and head instructor at River Valley Taekwondo and attorney Luke Ryan, thank you both so very much. Everybody was kung fu fighting. Those kids were fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. But they fought with expert timing. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The cities of Northampton and East Hampton will receive a combined $5 million from the state as part of efforts to decarbonize affordable housing and make it sustainable. The money is part of the first round of the Affordable Housing Deep Energy Retrofit Grant Program. $2 million will go to Valley Community Development Corp. for its plan to redevelop a former Northampton nursing home on Bridge Road into 60 affordable apartments. In East Hampton, another $3 million will go to Beacon Communities Development for the Treehouse Community Project. A civil lawsuit has been filed by Eric Granger of Munson, a minority shareholder of Treehouse Brewing Co., alleging two majority shareholders in the company are paid excessive salaries and secretly invested in real estate. Treehouse co-founders Nathan Lanier and Damian Goodrow have been accused of withholding financial information from Granger. Granger has been deprived of real financial benefit, according to the lawsuit, from the growing company. The 14th annual March for the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts ended in Greenfield yesterday, having raised $458,000. Here's Senator Joe Comerford on why she joined the march. I march because I believe in the work of the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts and the other food banks across the Commonwealth, meeting the immediate demands of hunger and food insecurity of our neighbors. Governor Maura Healey met marchers at the finish line in Greenfield. We're going to do everything we can as an administration to address food insecurity in this state. Nobody should be hungry in this state. The money raised will help provide one and a half million meals to people in need. We had some showers this morning. They are starting to calm down as we get closer to the afternoon. We're going to be seeing some highs mainly in the mid to high 40s evening. Thankfully, temperatures are going to cool down as it's going to be mostly cloudy with no rain. Temperatures mainly in the mid to high 30s. And Thanksgiving is going to be a lovely sunny day with temperatures in the high 40s. I'm Jack Way with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. 
which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Are you exploring the next step for you or a loved one? Join the vibrant, welcoming Rockridge Retirement Community. Moving to Rockridge is a chance to make new friends, live in bright, spacious apartments, enjoy farm-to-table food, activities, and trips to downtown Northampton and other fun places. Sign on before November 30th and get 30 days free and a waiver of the community fee. For more information, call 413-586-2902 or visit rockridgema.org. Rockridge Community, with everything that matters. The holiday season has just begun and everyone's already feeling overwhelmed. HelloFresh gets that and they're here to give you a break. You can take back time spent on meal planning because HelloFresh has it covered with over 45 options to choose from each week with recipes that suit many lifestyles. You can skip that extra trip to the supermarket too because HelloFresh delivers all the quality farm fresh ingredients you need right to your door, pre-portioned and ready to cook. They also have snacks, quick breakfasts and easy lunches to cover mealtime anytime. And you can even save money because HelloFresh is 25% cheaper than takeout. Yeah, you see what we mean? HelloFresh handles all the hard part, so you can actually enjoy cooking at home again. So this holiday season, don't stress about mealtime. Sign up for America's number one meal kit today, and you'll get free breakfast for life with the code ARMSTRONGFREE at HelloFresh.com slash ARMSTRONGFREE. That means one breakfast item per box while subscription is active. Again, it's the code ARMSTRONGFREE at HelloFresh.com slash ARMSTRONGFREE. HelloFresh.com slash ARMSTRONGFREE. And this is our Have Faith segment. We are visiting with the Reverend Carol Bull, who is the pastor at the United Church of Ware. Reverend Carol Bull, thank you so much for being with us today. I was struck by the piece written by Reverend Andrea Vazian in the Gazette last weekend, published last weekend, things she is giving thanks for. And I'm wondering if you could share with us your thoughts as we approach a holiday generally referred to as Thanksgiving, but also appropriately appropriately referred to as a National Day of Mourning. Sure. So so great to be with you here, Bill. And um, I did read Andrea's piece, and um, and I've read it before, and it's, it's remarkable for its breadth and length. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, for me, gratitude is a daily practice. Um, every day I do writing on what I'm grateful for, and, um, you know, that helps me to be, I've always been kind of a half-glass-full kind of person anyway, but it, it definitely makes the, the glass much fuller uh, when I do that daily practice. And, um, you know, today I'm, and I think with Thanksgiving coming and family and friends arrive and things like that, it's just a lovely time to get together and um, and we also need to do our own work in um, uh, with in terms of Native American people and understanding they are still with us. They are our neighbors. How can we help them? What can we learn from them? Um, what can we give to their cause? As always, and um, and that's really really important as well. Um, 
and I think, um, you know, the, the gratitude practice goes from the, the very tiny little things that we think of as tiny, but nowadays, of course, we don't because there's wars going on. So the peace in my neighborhood at night is something to be grateful for. Um, my ability to tell my truth in a congregation of faith is um, something to be grateful for. Uh, the uh, the patience I'm learning as I work with others, uh, something we all need to work on. Um, that's another thing to be grateful for. And also, um, you know, just the various faith traditions that I draw from to help me uh, stay centered, to help me stay centered in love and nonviolence. And, um, you know, and just being on the show is a part of that. So I, I thank you for this opportunity. Tell us about how you will observe this day or how you bring yourself uh, into this uh, more spiritual realm of giving thanks and uh, understanding more about our human condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I would say it's kind of more of the same. And by that, I mean each each day I start in meditation and prayer, and uh, that anchors my day. And people have lots of different ways of doing that, of course, that are equally valid. Um, I try to stay in touch with friends and family on a regular basis. Um, you know, I'll be with my son and my daughter and my daughter's roommate. Um, and today we're actually, we have birthdays around this time. So my daughter was born on the 24th of November. And so we're doing her birthday today, actually. And um, we do that by going to her house, getting some great takeout food from Springfield. And um, and we go to Bright Nights, which is that drive-through park in Franklin Park. Um, uh, so anyway. Um, Reverend Carroll, let, let, me, let me ask you one thing, because uh, yeah. I don't want to lose track of it. You mentioned both yeah. meditation and prayer. Are those yeah. are those close for you, or those are different practices? They they can merge, um, and, but they happen. I mean, I have a small meditation room, and I go in there and I do whatever I'm able to do. Usually, it's, it's at least twenty minutes in the morning. Sometimes later, I do more, um, and it's just my time to be with my. Uh, the divine beings who support me, and um, which includes ancestors, by the way, you know, people who, whose shoulders I stand on, mentors, uh, and I have a list of people I pray for, and I pray for my church community, and um, so usually I do um, prayer at the end. I usually meditate first, and then I do prayer at the end, but people do it, again, many different ways. I know, and I meditating, know. I would say you probably have heard prayer is speaking to God and meditation is listening for God. So I do both of those things. Wow. I had not heard that. That was really good. I know you have a poem that you'd like to share with us. Want to tell us what it is? Yes. I uh, I have um, a few poems, and I, maybe I'll do the first, the... So this, I was, I'm going to do some a poem on war and a poem on peace. And this, this is particularly timely. This is from Mosab Abu Toha, from his book Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear, and it's for written for a doctor, Alicia Kesnell. When you open my ear, touch it gently. My mother's voice lingers somewhere inside. 
Her voice is the echo that helps recover my equilibrium when I feel dizzy during my attentiveness. You may encounter songs in Arabic, poems in English I recite to myself, or a song I chant to the chirping birds in our backyard. When you cut, when you stitch the cut, don't forget to put all these back in my ear. Put them back in order as you would do with books on your shelf. So that's part one. Part two is the drone's buzzing sound, the roar of an F-16, the screams of bombs falling on houses, on fields, and on bodies, of rockets flying away. Rid my small ear canal of them all. Spray the perfume of your smiles on the incision. Inject the song of life into my veins to wake me up. Gently beat the drum so my mind may dance with yours. My doctor, day and night. And Toha is a Palestinian, and he was recently handed back. Um, he was kept for two days and uh, apparently beaten. I don't know the rest of the current story, but he is an amazing poet. We are speaking with the Reverend Carol Bull, pastor at the United Church of Ware. When we come back, we're going to reflect more on war and peace, the meaning of life, and we're going to have a remembrance of John Kennedy, who was assassinated 60 years ago today. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Massachusetts football returns to McGuirk Alumni Stadium for the last time this season this Saturday. It's UMass and UConn at noon. And as a show of appreciation, you'll enjoy an in-stadium fan fest when the gates open, including a cash bar, DJ, games, and a lot more. UMass will also celebrate their graduating class and their contributions to the UMass football program. Catch the Minutemen this Saturday at noon as they take on UConn. Get your tickets online at umassathletics.com tickets. Texting privacy policy and terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. Minimum purchase required. Interest accrues from date of purchase, but is waived if paid within promotional period. Go to windowappointmentnow.com for full offer details. Attention all homeowners. Do you know when to replace your windows? Feeling too hot or cold? Fog between the glass. Spending too much on expensive energy that literally goes out the window? It's definitely time to replace. If you've put off replacing windows in your home because it's too expensive, here's great news. You can now get a free in-home window consultation and free price quote from Renewal by Anderson. And right now, you can 
can save $375 off every window and $750 off every door. Just text GET to 200-300 for your free consultation on top quality affordable windows or patio doors for $0 down, zero payments, and zero interest for a year. That's right. You don't pay a dime for an entire year. Text GET to 200-300 right now to save $375 off every window and $750 off every door. But hurry, these big dollar savings won't last long. Text GET to 200-300. Don't wait. Text the word GET to 200-300. Text GET to 200-300. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. I remember where I was 60 years ago today when the class I was in was told that President John F. Kennedy had just been shot and probably was dead. This was a momentous event for the country. It was a momentous event for me personally. And of course, it was one of the first assassinations that uh, I was aware of. I mean, other, other presidents had been assassinated um, or, and or had been the victims of attempted assassinations. But John Kennedy's assassination followed, of course, shortly by Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. And of course, there had been the assassination of Malcolm X and then Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Mm-hmm. What a horrifying time in American history. What a terrible loss for the country. And it still reverberates and feels very personal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if you, Carol Bull, the pastor at the United Church mm-hmm. of Ware, if you have any thoughts about this on or about JFK and or the assassinations and or the violence um, on this day. Oh, yeah, yes. And I, I have a similar memory. You know, I was in suburban Illinois, north of Chicago, and my parents were about the only Democrats in our town um, of Republicans. And um, my parents adored Kennedy, uh, my mother in particular. And, you know, we were called into the auditorium and eventually we were all sent home and we spent the weekend in front of the television um, crying and mourning. And um, it was very, very, very hard time, very intense time, very intense time. I remember being on the streets in uh, New York and on that Sunday thinking, mm-hmm. my God, th- there are people just kind of walking somewhere or driving somewhere like it's a normal day. And it felt to me like the whole world had just been yes. turned upside down. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then how to kind of come out of that morning time also and, and back to being the kid. It was a weird, it was a very weird time, but... Uh, my parents were very, very, very upset, and, uh, and it, was, it was troubling and scary. And seeing it on television also, just another piece of that, you know, at that time we were able to, and oh, my God. Yes, and watching the assassination of the assassin uh, on, yeah, on yeah. television. Oh, my God. It was, un- know, it was unbelievable. And it, to it me, it was one of the few... And I'm not a terribly religious person or observant, mm-hmm. but that weekend I went to synagogue. Wow. I just felt the need to, yes. to, to somehow be closer to something bigger, more important, more eternal. It was really yes. an extraordinary event for the country. Wow. It was something that w- the country, in fact, experienced, I think, together in, in a very yes. meaningful and very tragic way. 
yes. You have another poem you'd like to share with us, uh, Reverend no, I, I Pastor? I do. Um, yeah, so there's, first of all, uh, the Poetry Foundation website is a beautiful place, and um, there are some wonderful things. This is not from that, but this is a Gandhi's uh, statements, and um, of course he said uh, from the Hebrew Scripture, uh, echoed that, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And then this this beautiful piece, let the first act of every morning be to make the following resolve for the day. I shall not fear anyone on earth. I shall fear only God. I shall not bear ill toward anyone. I shall not submit to injustice from anyone. I shall conquer untruth by truth. And in resisting untruth, I shall put up with all suffering. Wow. So, as we are affected, as we are by the wars and, that are going on and the difficulties uh, all over uh, that we get, you know, 24-7 if we don't watch out, um, and then there's that proclamation of... And I think fear, some people don't love the word fearing God, but what it means is to be humble before God, and that we don't have to be humble towards anyone on earth, but we need to be humble at least before God. Because we don't have the whole picture, though we may think we do. We have been speaking with the Reverend Carol Bull. She is the pastor at the United Church of Ware, we want to thank you so much for spending time with us today and all the days that you were with us. Reverend Carol Bull, we really appreciate your insights and your thoughts, your warmth, your devotion, not only to your community, but to the larger community and the world as well. We thank you so very much, and we wish you peace and love on this Thanksgiving and or the day of mourning. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Bill, and back at you with all of that praise. <laughs> Take care. Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. WHMP Northampton and WRNO.